It's like the space industry builds one of the most advanced technologies in the world, but uses every other marketing tool that is from the previous century. You're now listening to Space Forward Podcast. I'm Hussein Bukhari, your host. With me are Matthias Frenzel and Benjamin Shapiro. In this episode, we talk about the rise of first space marketplaces and how SatSearch's product KnowledgeGraph helps solving problems for marketplace users. We ask what kind of acquisition loops work in the space sector, how does their experiment framework look like, and should space marketplaces scale vertically or horizontally. We talk about unit economics, defensibility, and how SatSearch bootstrapped their way forward with the support of ESA Business Incubation Center. Our guest today is Narayan Prasad, co-founder and COO of SatSearch, a global marketplace for the space industry. Incubated by the European Space Agency, Narayan is a multiple academic degree holder in space-related sciences, a vivid member of the Indian space community, and Indian in Germany living space entrepreneur. Narayan, it's great to have you with us. You have a very interesting and unique biography, and I'm very curious to understand, you know, how all of this unfolded and who is Narayan Prashad Nagendra. So you're from India. You're living in Berlin, Germany. One bachelor, four master's degrees, space science, astrophysics, space law, and you just finished your PhD on a thesis on satellite big data, co-founder of SatSearch, obviously, and it seems like you're running an active, you're an active member of the Indian space community, cannot highlight your own podcast, uh, uh, New Space India, which is, so tell us a little bit about yourself. What drives you and keeps you up at night? What has made you do so much? Look, I think um, uh, my story goes back to like very simple days as such, because uh, most people in the space sector are inspired by their childhood about stars and space and everything of that nature. And uh, I was actually lucky that I stumbled into the space sector through friends of mine who said, let's do a project uh, that's related to, you know, building aerospace like uh, UAVs, for example. And then we did a project on microsatellites, you know, building structures around. So I was actually lucky because uh, without my friends putting together that project, I would have never uncovered space as a sector and uh, would have never discovered space as something that I really love doing, right? So because I had no such childhood dreams about stars or whatever, astronauts or so on, uh, growing up in uh, southern part of India, uh, coming from a pretty like, you know, usual Indian family as any of them. And even my parents are not really scientists or any uh, big, you know, science enthusiasts as such. You know, they uh, it just pushed us to do whatever we can. So I was very lucky to encounter that and did some of these projects and then realized that uh, this is like uh, the world that I love, you know, working in the space sector and Got on uh, with my life to coming here to Europe and studied in all of these different places. Went back to India, started a company there, ran the company for five years. It was really messed up the experiences of having to do entrepreneurship in a place like India, where uh, it was still very early days of new space, where you know essentially all of the contracts are attached to the space agency, and essentially you have to rely on getting contracts there and 
only now in the last like four or five years, the things have been open up, opening up in India as such. And so my frustration again led me back to coming back to Europe. And the way that I could come back is to like subsidize myself coming back was through the PhD route. So actually, you know, getting a PhD allowed me to like come back to Europe, take the time of building up a company like SatSearch at the same time. And at the same time, not worrying about, you know, staying alive, uh, actually doing two jobs at a time, like working on my PhD, running SatSearch at the same time. And our, we were kind of lucky because the first time I met Karthik was 10 years ago at an event in Bangalore that I was running. And we had just this good timing and a good relationship that we kept up. And, um, and then everything fell into place. And again, you know, uh, with all the luck behind us, by the time I was finishing my PhD, you know, my colleagues were also looking at uh, doing this search search full time. We had enough customer traction uh, in the market to be able to do this uh, full time as well. So it really gave us a path towards uh, being sustainable. Um, we are, you know, more or less a very traditional space company as such. We don't have any large uh, venture capitalists or any of that nature behind us. So we're purely a customer driven company as such. So, uh, you know, we're really tied to our customers and the market itself. So tomorrow, if our customers uh, perish or we don't dr drive enough value to our customers, you know, we get off the market as well. So that's given us a lot of the foot footholding in terms of uh, how we can build our company and how we can scale. But, uh, you know, coming from a place like India, I always used to ask some of my colleagues here in Europe, like, tell me one supplier, you know, in India who can do some space stuff, right? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, we've created an ecosystem around in different parts of the world where suppliers and the capabilities and suppliers are, are funded through taxpayers. And it works like islands. Like the US is one massive island where taxpayers keep funding cycles of suppliers and suppliers keep producing stuff that the US government needs through NASA or DOD, wherever. It's the same in Europe where you have ESA and, you know, all these national space agencies funding. And then the money, it obviously makes sense because nobody wants taxpayers to fund other countries, right? So it does make sense that, uh, you know, those capabilities are built there. But then we have never experienced a moment where commercialization of space will lead to globalization of supply chains, right? Because it's the it's a theory behind every other industry in the world, which is driven by technology, where if you see any mature technology landscapes in the world in any other industry, right? The one thing that you will see that is automatic is globalization of supply chains. And it's happened across everything, right? So it's taken, you take the example of something like the aviation world, where it was all military, you know, doing very much uh, taxpayers funding militaries to build aircrafts, and then, you know, keeping a very tight hold on the IP and the production and the supplier landscape. Suddenly the commercial aviation world takes off, and today, you know, like a small, you know, vendor up in southern India is producing some nuts and bolts and, you know, whatever composite panels to an aircraft uh, that is carrying people in Europe, for example, and nobody knows, right? And procurement happens in, in the orders of what is the price per kilogram and not what is the technology. That's how mature aviation uh, supply chains have become at the end. And so this uh, is something that we have not seen in space. And for us, you know, we at Satsurge believe that uh, there are about 100,000 suppliers that are relevant to the space industry. 
and unfortunately you know all of us including us at sat search don't know these 100000 suppliers and cannot map them uh, today but we've done uh, mapping of about 3000 suppliers as of today and we've identified their capabilities and what they're able to produce and you know how good they are in many of these things and uh, for us you know the goal is to capture these 100000 suppliers that we believe are uh, very important for commercialization of space and uh, to then you know globalize the supply chain and eventually that is the way that we believe is the path to reducing the access to cost uh, to to get to space and also the cost of uh, you know doing space missions because not every person in the world will have uh, the ability to uh, take an approach like what spacex does or oneweb does or whoever it is where you vertically integrate everything in house uh, i mean it's like asking a company like volkswagen saying you produce everything in the automotive world and you vertically integrate into your car right it it can work to a certain extent to a certain volume but uh, you know no company in the automotive industry will say we'll vertically integrate you know you mentioned that you and kartik got along very well so did you guys bootstrap your way through and finance finance this entire thing yourself through the cash flow absolutely and you know one of the things with satsearch is all of us co-founders are either you know space engineers or in alberto's case he is from the world of bioinformatics and has done a phd in that and has no relationship to the space industry um he's a straight on programmer uh, and so for us you know the idea of uh, building a platform came with the uh, of the intent but also we had to learn other skill sets like you know how do you actually sell to customers what is the problem that we are solving you know what is the what is it worth to the to our customers what then what can they pay us you know how can how can we scale up the platform all of these are challenges that we had to actually uh, solve in the process and we had to also find our own roles within the company and you know look at who's going to handle relationships who's going to handle sales who's going to handle operations all of these things right and um, uh, i still believe that you know we were since we built software and you know we don't really need to buy a lot of components and hardware and everything else we could bootstrap because not every company in the space industry can do that right because if you have to fly a satellite to prove a certain piece of technology unless you know your parents and your family is rich enough you cannot go build that uh, uh, by yourself and uh, the good thing is with satsearch since we built only software tools we could build a version of the platform and go to a potential customer and ask them you know what's it worth for you if you get business through such search or even you want to get access to the community that we are building and you know we systematically ramped up uh, that uh, we went to a few initial customers turned them into early customers early adopters proved the value to them uh, scaled up prices to them got into new customers so today we have customers from 22 different countries so that's been our approach you know it's like any other traditional it saas software tool that's built uh, but we you know applied our learnings from that world to this world and uh, you know that's that's how we've built uh, the company up and today yeah i mean the other part of all of this is also uh, of course you know we are a small team that is doing uh, you know what we can with the existing customers as such and we still debate in the company as to you know should we go ahead and raise whatever uh, large 
uh, investment round or, or so on to build up the platform to what it is possible and the ideas that we have to scale and everything. And it's an ongoing debate that we have as well because uh, I also strongly believe that uh, you know your customers keep you grounded because you're not burning money from someone else. Uh, but at the same time, you are really, you know, gr uh, grounded to the to the customers and, you know, their problems. And until and unless you, we have a full visibility of their problems and the scale at which we can solve them, it may be a bad idea for any, like, uh, company to, to, to raise a round of funding just to burn on hiring more people or so on. So, I mean, I may be wrong. There may be other approaches in all of this. But, you know, this is what works for us. And this is what we've been doing, at least. Well, at least it's working for you guys. So so are you currently using, like, internet website scraping tools to found 100,000 suppliers? Or are you, do you have a product knowledge graph that you're working on internally? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of both. Uh, we have, uh, you know, basically a lot of uh, buyers, right, on our site. We have over 10,000 monthly active users uh, who are searching uh, on the site, looking for components, products, services, suppliers. Um, and so, you know, the idea of, uh, uh, you know, what direction that we want to go is also driven by our own users in that sense, because at the end of the day, a lot of our users come to us because they trust our knowledge, uh, the platform's ability to deliver to them. Um, and, you know, the the idea of growing the database also comes from just knowing what buyers really want to uh, want to buy because at the end of the day that gives us a signal that if one person is searching for something there may be someone else searching for the same thing and if we are able to populate the database in that direction it gives us an ability to go there and say okay this is what we can do because you know we are again limited by resources right so we cannot simply close our eyes and say okay let's go populate everything we can at the end of the day and, you know, it's also an interesting question because uh, people are not used to this kind of way of uh, doing marketing and sales and business development in the industry because, you know, for example, we've had companies who have even threatened us legally to just listing their products on our site as well. So, uh, so it really depends on, you know, how comfortable a particular supplier is. We've had suppliers who have been very enthusiastic about even sharing their data, sharing every piece of information, including prices, CAD models, you know, ICDs and things like that. But we've also had suppliers who have sent us legal notices saying, you know, why did you put my data on your site? You know, how come uh, you guys didn't take permission from us and everything? And so it's it's a mixed bag in overall, you know, we've seen almost everything, every sort of, sort of behavior from suppliers out there. Uh, but, you know, as you build up credibility and as you build up uh, the ability to showcase value to suppliers, I think a lot of those doubts uh, go away. And uh, and then, you know, uh, when, when we prove uh, to uh, people that there is a value that we are creating and we can showcase that, I think that's the proof because at the end of the day today, uh, for us, you know, we are proving to to suppliers on a daily basis that uh, we're trying to generate uh, business for them. We're trying to generate uh, value for them. But at the same time, we are sol solving the problems that buyers have, right? So because on an average, an engineer spends between two and three weeks to get the sort of information the engineer wants to make a decision. And that's not attached to any technical data as such. It's just the back and forth that engineers have in you know, uh, getting uh, whatever technical information or pricing information that they have. And, you know, how many industries are there in the world where people spend so much time in just 
back and forth uh, between you know a person looking for some information and a supplier and streamlining that itself is is a is a massive big opportunity that we see, for example. What exactly, I'm trying to get a better understanding for this, and obviously our, our listeners will be too. You know, it's a B2B marketplace, right? That's the fundamental basis. What was the underlying thesis that you wanted to prove as you guys started this? And like, what was the problem that you're trying to solve here? Is it connecting? Is it finding? Is it is it both? Is it uh, revenue opportunities? What are What is that? Right. So, there are two sides to the marketplace, right? So you have the buyer side of the marketplace and you have the supplier side of the marketplace, right? And on the buyer side, it's quite simple because we ourselves are space engineers and we knew what the problems were. It's very easy to figure that out. Um, and for us on the buyer side, it was very simple. If new space economy is bringing a new supply chain in its own, right? So if you go talk to uh, people at Thales or Airbus or you know ESA or wherever, their supply chain is built around the legacy space industry where they know the capabilities of suppliers, they know certain you know standards uh, that they want to stick to, and they know their supply chains are built up very well for those kinds of missions that they do, right? But then if you are looking at uh, the new space landscape where there are new entrants into the space industry, they don't ha- really have the heritage of working at a company like Thales or Airbus or wherever it is, and they have led, you know, through some CubeSat projects or, you know, microsatellite projects or even, you know, non-space people coming into the space industry. They have no clue of how supply chains work as such, right? And so, and though, and they don't really have these constraints of, I want to buy only from European vendors. I only want to buy from like American vendors or whatever it is. They may have some constraints of saying, okay, I don't want to buy from a vendor in Iran or, you know, vendor in uh, North Korea or, or, you know, China or somewhere like that. Uh, That may be the, you know, very little restrictions that they have, unlike space agencies do or others do in, in that sense. And for them, you know, they have to undergo this discovery process of uh, trying to understand, you know, they know what they want in terms of specifications. They do, They may not know who they want to get it from or what is the best price to performance they want to get for that and, and so on, right? So, so we are in the business of, you know, addressing that kind of a problem uh, for buyers out there. And... It's also about the transparency in what information that there is available in the marketplace. Because if you look at uh, what suppliers provide historically, people will not even provide data sheets for components uh, today, right? So even just getting data sheets at a component level is a massive struggle to a large extent. And one of the problems that we see is the marketplace can solve is if an engineer wants to get data, if it is only a data sheet or a CAD model or whatever it is, and if it's some sort of a proposal or a trade study or whatever it is that they're conducting, they should be able to get it without you know, doing a massive amount of paperwork. Uh, and so even there, you know, supplier behaviors are changing in today. But then you know, the, the process that an engineer has to go through to get all the technical and pricing information and the supply chain information, including like things like lead time or or so on, the whole you know that the amount of man hours that engineers spend on all of that is is really really large compared to you know 
what uh, the established supply chains in in you know traditional space agencies or others would be right so and also the procurement mechanisms are very different so in a space agency they may call for a tender where you just answer to the tender and then you are you know if you are the lowest bidder and you you get the order right but in here there's a lot of discovery there's a lot of uh, you know uh, kind of trust building between the supplier and the buyer and and everything else so for that for us you know the idea is that we want to be able to you know help these engineers work with them and and then connect uh, and and then suppliers to basically use our platform to message all this information and make it open right so for us if all of this information is available openly through our platform for example and it solves the problems of engineers and they're able to make qu- quicker decisions and they're happy that solves a massive problem for engineering teams and engineers at the end right and so the same for the buyer side and you know, so on the supplier side it's uh, it's a different journey and this is something that we had to discover ourselves is what is the problem that we are supp- uh, you know solving on the supplier side and this had to be our own discovery because this is where our business model was also attached to earth and so on so and then you know we looked at what the problem that we were solving and the one thing that we noticed is that essentially every time we are bringing a buyer in front of the supplier we are creating a business opportunity for them to sell to somebody new right right so and you know for example if a supplier up in greece you know who has like 10 people uh, working with them and they're specialized in some battery technology and you know don't really have a massive marketing workforce a massive sales workforce but they're really good at what they do is able to you know say that i have the capability and the heritage and uh, and i have the you know wherewithal to kind of produce what a particular buyer wants and is able to supply to a requirement up in you know argentina for example the transaction between that person in between argentina and greece is very interesting right because without the argentinian buyer knowing that th- this greek small company has this capability and is able to provide that at a price to performance that is the best in the world the guy in argentina for example may have to you know basically resort, resort to some google searches and finding maybe two or three people that he gets through google for example and just gets to pick from them but right so but then you know the value to this greek supplier then becomes that us as a platform is able to give them this long tail value because today space is being done in 60 plus countries that are out there unlike you know 10 or 15 years ago and so this greek sme is now you know getting value from us uh, by getting to bid on an opportunity or even securing for example a contract from this argentinian buyer and you know that changes the nature of transactions in the space industry and you know it really then opens up the landscape of opportunities for suppliers as well so today you know about uh, 50% of our users come from this long tail where they're all from these non-european non-american uh, geography and from all different parts of the world we have south korea japan australia new zealand india you know many many places where we have users from and they're building some very interesting projects and we get to learn from them as to what they want and so on but then what is the cost of 
you know, reaching out to these markets to a small company that is 10 or 15 people, you know, produces some specialized component up in Europe, for example. And, you know, that's the problem that we can resolve for a lot of them, right? Because uh, we're actually putting these suppliers and their capabilities in front of these guys, these buyers to consider. And that may never have had happened because also because these suppliers, their focus is on, uh, you know, their capacity, their capability, their technology. It's not on marketing sales or, you know, using SEO or whatever it is uh, in terms of, uh, you know, crafting. How do you do digital marketing, for example, for their products? And so that's like a massive problem that we solve for all of these suppliers as such. And so the trust that we create on the buyer side and the work that we do with the suppliers is the combination of how the platform works at the end. Here's a question. I mean, it seems like a lot of the thing that you're doing is consistently iterating. Companies usually run an experimental framework, which kind of allows them to have many experiments, you know, consistently going in a parallel fashion, especially software-based companies like yourselves. So I'm curious to get an idea around, you know, the cost and time for iterating and running experiments that, that you're suffering through right now. How many experiments are you running? Are you using like different approaches, like, for example, the Google Sprint design and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we run, uh, you know, bi-weekly sprints. So our uh, all the experiments that we run and how we run the company is on this bi-weekly sprint uh, basis. And uh, my colleague Karthik is, you know, really good at setting all of these up. And he's the one who's driving a lot of the product as such. Um, and so it's also the mix of talent we have within the company itself that is very interesting because, uh, you know, I haven't really had any experience of uh, coding or, you know, I can't even say what is the difference between two different kinds of loops, for example, if somebody asked me to do that. Uh, so I can't really tell, you know, what feature needs what kind of timeline to build or, you know, what should we build or so on. But at the same time, you know, Karthik really knows that and Alberto can really build that uh, as such. So we have a really good setup as such uh, in in the co-founding, co you know, uh, between the three co-founders, right? And so then we've had uh, our colleague Haival join us, you know, specializing in SEO and marketing and so on. So that gives us like a foundation within the small team uh, to kind of build up all of these things. And so we actually look at... Uh, focusing on buyers and what buyers want as features and then looking at uh, how long does that take and how does it add value to the suppliers at the same time so uh, of course you know uh, buyers may ask us to build something that they want that will take us two years to build with the workforce that we have right uh, but it may not be reasonable for us to do it at the same time but every feature that we build is directly related to either scaling up our community of users or related to monetization and ideally both. So you've got a wish list and then you've got a more realistic list that you're carrying forward as you go. Absolutely. I mean, we have a wish list that we can build for the next 10 years. <laughs> That's good. That's awesome. It's a marketplace. It's a chicken and egg problem. You have to buy the seller side to get the products on the website buyer side with the cost in order to make sure that nothing else comes in the middle and you're con you continue thriving as a company 
So what was your approach to getting the two-sided network effect going for SAT search? Uh, like the market landscape, where do you go find to look for the supply and demand and the, the challenge that you've had in terms of the one that's been hardest to obtain? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, for every marketplace, that's a big problem as such. And, you know, I think you always start with the buyers and keeping buyers happy. And then, you know, when buyers are happy, they also refer other buyers, right? They also see that they got a great experience of working with us. And they're telling other people, you know, wow, that these guys at SatSearch have solved our problems and so on. So you then have a small word of mouth going for you as such. Uh, and today, you know, that multiplicates itself uh, as such. Uh, but then for us, initially, it's also reaching out to people who we know are buying as well, because we have a reasonably good network in the space industry. And, you know, we can always go to those initial set of people who we know are procuring, are working on interesting projects and just telling them, you know, how can we help? You know, if you're procuring X, Y, Z, can we help do the trade study for you? Can we help, you know, uh, sorting this out for you and so on? And so we had, you know, a, a group of like 50, 60 people who we knew, for example, who are building interesting projects in the beginning. And then we just went to them and asked them, okay, you know, what are you kind of procuring and how can we help and there? And so that gave us a, a initial group of people who we trusted us, who were, uh, you know, reasonable in terms of giving us some kind of uh, things that they wanted to procure or identify suppliers for and so on. So, and then, you know, that, that really allowed us to kind of go populate the database in that direction and then find those suppliers, create traction with them and, uh, and then tell them, okay, we have a pretty interesting buyer for you that uh, you may want to talk to to see if there's synergies for you. And that also then populates the supply side because we've identified suppliers uh, that the buyer wants to talk to and then we've populated that database in that, in that direction and so on, right? And the proof is in the pudding for many of these suppliers because if a supplier says, I've had a great experience going through this process of discovering this buyer from you, and even if that buyer has not really placed uh, the end order to this supplier because of whatever X, Y, Z reason, they're too, they're too, you know, their lead time is too long or they don't have heritage or their cost is too long or whatever, too much or so on. There may be a number of reasons there, but then, you know, the supplier then gets the experience of uh, saying, look, this becomes a valuable, you know, lead generation and a marketing channel for us. And if we are able to get one of them, what if we get you 10 of them or 100 of them, right? So, and then, you know, the idea is very simple. So the initial set of customers who work, we worked with, um, uh, you know, really trusted us in that sense saying, we don't know if your platform is going to work, right? And so we need our initial set of suppliers, our customers to have a leap of faith that they will take with us that the investment that they are making is may not work, but if that, if it does work, you know it gets them business. So, um, so yeah, so that was the the journey for us in discovering our initial set of customers who really trusted us with their money and time, saying that you know we are willing to experiment and we're willing to fail with you if uh, if you're gonna if you guys are gonna fail. But, you know, we're very, very, very happy and, you know, we created that value to those customers. And, you know, today uh, we charge our initial set of customers that we had, you know, six times, seven times the price that we onboarded them initially. Wow. 
So, uh, so yeah, so the so growth, that, the yeah, growth us, is exponential at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, the idea is very simple. So we try to uh, make the barrier to entry very low. And at the same time, we want to create a, a, an excellent customer experience for every supplier at the same time. And, and then, you know, we want to show the evidence to those suppliers, to our customers, and tell them the reason why you're going to be paying us more or why you need to pay us more is because here's the evidence that you're getting traction through our platform. So, so here's a question for you. I'm trying to figure this out. And I, I, I'm, I, it was, it's been my, in my head that typically, you know, as you're starting off, you have to focus on resources. So, you know, which markets, uh, region countries that did you guys really go and start with? You know, you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, you were, you have this uh, island framework that, you know, the USA is an island and the taxpayers are, are funding the suppliers to, to continue this, this cyclical model. So where did you, sort of start and begin this process? Yeah, the good thing is, you know, uh, between me and Karthik, we already had relationships with, you know, tens and hundreds of suppliers already that we knew, for example, right? So, um, you know, Karthik uh, has, you know, he's been here in Europe for a long, long time. i am been in India for a long time. I know, you know, hundreds of suppliers in India as such. And, uh, and I've also worked in, uh, in the previous company that I co-founded with several international suppliers at the same time. And, you know, for us, it was to go to these initial set of friends in the industry that we knew are supplying something or the other and try to tell them this is what we want to build. And this presenting them with some evidence that their buyers interested in uh, what they do. And then getting them to like have a leap of faith with us as such, right? So uh, our first customer was uh, Hyperion, uh, which is a Dutch company. Uh, we are also a Dutch company. So they took that leap of faith uh, with us saying that, you know, uh, let's try this out uh, and so on. And, you know, today, there's st- even after like now, I think it's been two years since we have had a contract with them. And also the making the barrier of entry very, very low because when we started out the platform, we almost gave the choice to suppliers uh, who are our customers saying that you can quit the platform with a 30-day notice, right? So you come in, you pay on a monthly basis, but you can also quit with a 30-day notice to us. So there is no like, you know, long-term engagement for them. It's the barrier of entry becomes quite low to, to them and so on. That's how we created a lot of traction among suppliers because we made the barrier to entry so low for these people saying, okay, you know what, it's, it may be worth it because I'm going to be experimenting it for, for a short time. Yeah, and I can always pull the plug on these guys if they don't deliver to me, right? There's no long-term engagement of any sort with us. And that's uh, something that allowed us to be on our toes every single day because we knew like the time is ticking with every customer that we have and we need to deliver as much value as we can to most of them as such. All our customers today are on uh, you know yearly contracts. So we've been able to move and you know we don't really uh, you know engage with anybody on a short-term basis today anymore. And so that's the proof that the platform is kind of maturing as such. You know, because we have today customers from all of these 20 plus different countries, we can go back to any of the new prospects saying, you know, we're a mature enough company and we know what we're trying to do. And unfortunately, we can't engage with any of them on a 
on a trial basis or a short-term basis. Yeah, because you have that heritage that, that, that the others are seeking. B2B, the, the time to benefit and time to fill could take a while due to incorp- like corporate internal purchase processes and policies. You know, procurement uh, frameworks within each company are very, very different. And I'm imagining that it actually influenced your unit economics in terms of cash liquidity and, you know, the liquidity of marketplace itself. You know, how are you dealing with that at the moment? Uh, you know, uh, and how did you deal with that in the past? Like, what was the journey around that? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question because, you know, that also uh, is a place where I think people can make a lot of mistakes because uh, building a business model around marketplaces is uh, very different from depending on the industry, depending on, you know, the purchase cycles and, and everything, right? So for us, uh, you know, the idea of us just becoming a reseller or a distributor was not very enthusiastic because we also lose the neutrality of the marketplace, right? Because if our incentive is to say, you know, this person is our customer and we have to push our customer's product to be able to monetize, we become a, a, a distributor or a, or a reseller and not a neutral entity in the transaction anymore, right? Uh, and so, the way that we have done it is not to look at ourselves as a reseller or a distributor. And we also, you know, if we tell the buyers that our incentive is, is, is commission or the buyers figure out, you know, the stat search guys, you know, get a commission on the sale that we make, it creates mistrust among buyers using the platform, right? So for us, you know, we think of ourselves as, um, you know, any other SaaS subscription model that suppliers would have, uh, right? And then what they're getting really access to is our, you know, community of buyers today, right? So so essentially, you know, we have crafted uh, Sat Search as a platform where buyers come to identify suppliers, to look for, you know, things, uh, products and services. And then what most of our customers today are getting access to is this community of buyers that we have crafted. And in many cases, we're also helping suppliers find product market fit for their own components, right? So today, you know, like 80% of our customers are SMEs who have certain product market fit and they have their own businesses running, but 20% of our customers may be, you know, small companies or, uh, or startups or so on, who are, you know, trying to find product market fit and buy you know, helping them uh, access our community of buyers today, we're also helping them know if they need to make changes to their products or if uh, the market is moving in a certain direction that they are not ready to do or move into or, you know, if they if their product really works and if there's traction for that product. So the marketplace is also helping those those kinds of customers as well at the end, right? Because at the end of the day, you'll not find many places in the space industry that has, you know, over 10,000 monthly users. active users who are all from the space. So here's industry. a so here's a perfect question for you. You know, it's a risk that startups get addicted to buy traffic um, from large platforms, uh, you know, in this case, Google, you know, which makes the entire enterprise dependent on Google. Besides this, the, the traffic has some sort of an upper limit, and especially in the space industry, because you have a hard time doing those conversions, con- consistently moving that clock forward. So 
a rule of thumb uh, is to, to have three kinds of uh, not correlating acquisition loops. So I'm trying to figure out what are, what are your acquisition loops at the moment? So, I mean, for us, it's very simple as such, because since we are dependent on buyers to tell us what they want, you know, the buyers, for example, you know, today we had a buyer saying, I want a 10 ampere hour lithium ion battery. I want to procure it. And so we know, for example, 10 suppliers or 15 suppliers who are able to produce that battery because, you know, we've either got other suppliers to refer us or we've Googled it ourselves and then populated the database or we've had, you know, previous transactions with us or whatever. And so for us, you know, it's very simple. When we go to suppliers, we can tell them, okay, you know, this is uh, a buyer that is here that is interested in your product. And then, you know, we then... Uh, tell the, the the supplier they're saying, okay, now look here is a, a buyer that we've made an introduction to. Do you want to answer you know more of these queries and be in in these transactions more and more? Then you have to be a member on our platform because that's the only way that uh, you know we can convert these as customers because we've given them the evidence that uh, their products has traction through our community as well. Right. So, and also it's about uh, what are the tools and techniques that most suppliers have used in marketing and sales in the industry. It's like the space industry builds one of the most advanced technologies in the world, but uses every other marketing tool that is from yeah. the previous century. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, at the end of the day, you know, like uh, people will tell me, like, Oh, I'm going to like half a dozen conferences and I have booths in all of these half a dozen conferences. And, you know, we love be meeting all of these people there and, and everything. And then I tell them, OK, look, um, there's some interesting set of buyers in Taiwan or Vietnam. Uh, which conferences are you going there to to meet these people? Right. So, uh, yes, I mean, of course, I am a big believer in conferences. We do go to conferences as well because we want to meet people as well. But you know, it's about doing X, Y, Z things that gives differentiated results, right? So, uh, for you to like, you know, become popular in the in the market, right? So, right. So, and also people will tell me, for example, I want to spend on like Twitter or, or LinkedIn or Facebook traffic or, you know, Google ads or whatever it is. Unfortunately, the space industry is a pretty small industry as such. And any of these tools above, become extremely extremely hard for anybody to target uh because you know linkedin you might want to like uh, sponsor linkedin to uh, get some ads on linkedin or so on but linkedin segments people according to this defense and space as a category right and it's not space space and it's not space and then small sat right so the 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 segmentation of the audience among any of these, you know, generic social networking or, you know, generic search platforms are almost, uh, you know, doesn't return any kind of yield as such. And even if you have people clicking through those promoted, uh, you know, promotions or so on, they may not be relevant for you as uh, as an audience. I mean, it may be somebody who is from the defense industry or aerospace industry who just likes to know what is happening in the space industry or so on, uh, right, at the end. So you may register from some clicks to all of it but that it may not be that you know that's your target audience at the end right so for us it's also educating suppliers about you know what they can do with digital marketing that enables them to target people a little bit more 
uh, through through the community and so on. And so if I'm talking to a person who's been doing marketing in the industry for like 20 years, uh, for me, it's also to tell them what is the power of communities a little bit. Because at the end of the day, you know, the reason why they are so interested in having conference booths is because it's not a conference for defense space, automotive, everybody coming to the same conference, right? It's uh, conference booths are so effective in the space industry because it's a gathering of space people who are coming there and are interested to know what is happening in the industry and are either suppliers or buyers themselves. And, and then, you know, the idea is that the conference organizers have created a community of them and suppliers are buying into access to those through conference booths and they're, you know, standing there presenting themselves. Uh, but then, you know, we do the same thing as such, but then everything's online and the the long tail of it is present in 100 plus countries and it's all passive uh, because, you know, they don't need to stand there like they would uh, stand there for like two or three days. But then, you know, we we have that platform alive 365 days, you know, uh, 24 hours, right? And so that in itself is a huge education to people in the industry because when you're used to doing something, it's very hard to break that cycle and say, I want to try so something So at this new. point, would you say that word of mouth has become the, the primary portion of your funnel, that a lot of it's happening through buyers and sellers who are already on the platform, who've seen positive results through customer interaction and contract closures, that now they're able to, to, to maximize that? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix of everything. You know, it cannot just be like word of mouth. Uh, uh, it's it's a mix of, mix of everything on the buyer side. We've seen, for example, one engineer from one organization discovering us and letting other engineers know. So those, uh, his colleagues, for example, or her colleagues uh, filing requests, we've seen uh, people moving from one organization to the other. Uh, and then taking us to that organization and in introducing us there. Uh, we've seen uh, CEOs of our existing customers who are funded by same similar VC funds or same VCs referring us to other companies who the VC has funded and uh, and then, you know, uh, rec recommending us as a platform that they can uh, use for marketing and sales. So we've had all kinds of different, uh, you know, referrals come through that we've noticed both on the buyer and the supplier side. And so... And yeah, so this is, I think, um, uh, a little bit of uh, a sign of maturity uh, of the platform itself. But, you know, we're still capturing like less than 1% of the value uh, as such, because, you know, when I look at uh, our customer list today, we have you know, 35 customers or so on as such. But, you know, our, our goal is to really get there to 100,000 of them, right? So... Uh, so we really just barely the scratching surface. the surface. So 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 here's a yeah. question. It's been three years now, almost. You 2018, you got support from the ESA BIC program. How was that experience? How do you think that ESA, rather than a private organization, lent itself uh, to progress and the growth of the business? Uh, did it give you guys a boost at all? Yeah, I mean it's interesting because uh, this is also related to my previous. Uh, you know, query uh, or the answer that I gave you about, uh, you know, getting threatening letters from suppliers uh, because, you know, SatSearch as a project began uh, in uh, 2015 itself. And in fact, you know, we were up already two and a half years uh, before we even got into the ESA BIC. So, 
the one thing that ESA gave us is its uh, brand name, right? The the attachment of the brand name to ESA uh, and so on, and being under the ESA hood. Um, so we could say that we are supported by the European Space Agency, and that creates some trust among suppliers as such, right? So, and it also gives us some leverage uh, when it comes to such, uh, you know, threatening uh, letters. And it, when it happens to you for the first time, you're always scary because you're scared <laughs> because you're thinking, okay, you know, we have nothing and these guys are threatening us already. Uh, and uh, But then, you know, this gives you some sort of a, uh, a moat possibly around the ESA brand name. And it's also about the network, right? So uh, the the companies that we met through ESA events, we're very happy to also participate in uh, several events. And in fact, ESA also sponsored a booth for us uh, at the IAC in Bremen as well. So we had all of those uh, kind of kind introductions, networking events, uh, sponsorship to attend a few events. And and of course, you know, ESA also provides this uh, 50,000 euro uh, subsidy to invest in uh, technology development and, and so, so that on. that supported you guys and gave you the right boost in order to get the the platform off the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, given that it's also equity free, so you don't really give out any equity to yeah. ESA or so on. I mean, it's not a lot of money, but it's better than exactly. having no money. So. <laughs> Always. So, so um, you know, I'm trying to differentiate now for our listeners the difference between uh, marketplace for data and insights versus a marketplace for subsystems and satellite products. Um, you know, there are other marketplaces um, like uh, Claudio in Berlin and um, BCG DV portfolio company up 42, which is small, but it's growing pretty fast. You know, how do you see the market of space related marketplaces developing over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again a very interesting trend that you have uh, marketplaces popping up in uh, lots of different places uh, within the space industry. Uh, and, you know, we uh, we date back to many of these, right? So Up42 is also very recent, uh, you know, Space Watch or whoever it is. Um, they, they're all coming up at the same time and it's a sign of uh, maturity of the industry coming together because at the end of the day, the existence of a marketplace means that there is some sort of a competition that is ongoing between players and there is some sort of uh, uh, attraction that buyers have in trusting these uh, marketplaces and that buyers are facing some sort of a difficulty uh, at the same time. And the marketplace is able to like bridge the connection on both the buyer side and the uh, and the supplier side at the same time, right? So I am, yeah, I strongly believe that there are, you know, significant uh, value in some some of these marketplaces and how they are, you know, going to be creating value in the industry. And it's a sign of every other mature industry in B2B segments. Like if you look at, you know, companies like Airframer or others in the aviation world, for example, uh, they have tons of marketplaces in the aviation world. They're even, you know, uh, aviation world specific segments of marketplaces like MRO, like just for maintenance, repair and, all, and overall, right? So so even have segments there in the aviation sector, right? You have it in the automotive sector, you have it in materials, you have it in almost every other industry that are out there. And, you know, why is it that we in the space industry don't have many of them and the other industries have? It's maybe because they're already mature industries and there's enough uh, transactions going on through those marketplaces in those other industries that are there. 
and and we're just you know building that up in the space industry only now while some of these people have done that 10 or 15 or 20 years ago in other industries the other thing that that i consistently keep thinking about when it comes to marketplace is the future of space commercialization and then how that's going to sort of play a large role into you know setting up these key hubs that marketplace will become so how will the future of space commercialization and the entry of more private actors which is a move towards space to space as a as opposed to space for earth economy change the supply demand dynamic for space goods and services in in sat search type of marketplaces how do you see and where do you see the isas of the world the nasas of the world and the government and institutional actors participating at that point right i think there are two aspects to this right so i'm from bangalore in india and for example the set of problems that the society in india faces that can be solved with space is very different from the one that europe faces right and so it becomes uh, interesting when space entrepreneurs in india come up with this idea of we want to solve local problems that our society is facing and we want to use space to do it and they connect to that local cultural problem and are able to solve it at a price point that works there and you know getting to know that problem and having to have the cultural background to know it and how to solve it 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 it's not like you know you build an aircraft in europe and take it to india and fly the same thing there because people want to fly right so obviously there are all of these nuances that are coming in uh, when it comes to societies in in many other parts of the world and we haven't even uncovered these problems in geographies like africa or you know southeast asia or latin america or wherever right and so for me i think this is one of the most exciting things that are out there because i think that all of these problems are in places where people have never thought about using space based solutions and today you know because of all of this convergence in cloud and you know uh, cot space solutions and low cost to launch and all of these things are converging in such a fashion that the solutions to all of these problems you know become viable in the near future where uh, even if they don't have space agencies that are able to do it uh, people are able to then raise enough capital to go solve that problem by themselves and capture value out of it right so uh, i mean what is the uh, i mean for me i think space agencies should exist to fund technology development that is 25 years from now it doesn't make any uh, sense that a space agency should fund taxpayer money into a problem that industry can solve so uh, so at the end of the day you know that is the restructuring that i think is uh, interesting to see as such um and and so yeah so that was one part of it the second is also about uh, how do you incentivize uh, you know your suppliers to do more commercial business because one of the things that happen with legacy space agencies and legacy space is because the way space is organized and funded for the last 60 years because of the circulation of taxpayer money into you know certain programs and capabilities being kept alive it almost becomes you know having zero incentive to do any commercial business for many suppliers because 
you're just saying, okay, like, you know, I'm happy that I have 15 people or 20 people in my business, uh, you know, tendering to this local demand that I have from this X space agency. And I know that the demand is uh, stable and I'm going to be getting these revenues for the next 20 years until I retire. Uh, and, you know, this unit can can go on by itself. And for them, you know, for most of these kinds of suppliers, they're just happy doing what they are on a routine basis. And the space agencies just keep them alive with all of their contracts. And there's no like market dynamics that give them any kind of push or pull in any case. And some of them may be amb ambitious in trying new things and trying out to reach out to the commercial markets, but there should be some sort of an incentive that pushes to them in that direction, right? So, and unfortunately, I think uh, not many uh, space agencies may be thinking in this direction already. Uh, but I think if commercial space is going to like take on a lot of these uh, new opening up of new market segments and, you know, there's some kind of a redistribution of uh, how commercial space is done and how research funding is done differently in the space uh, sector altogether, then I think, you know, uh, we'll also see you know, space agencies uh, crafting procurement or structuring, you know, their own performance in a way that they will push these kinds of vendors within their own network to do more commercial well, that, stuff. That just means that and indicators so, will be different at that at that point, that everybody will be not necessarily looking out for themselves, but looking out for the ecosystem, you know, at that point. Yeah, I mean, it is as simple as this, right? So, for example, if ESA says, I'm going to give you like uh, 1 million euros to do this program for us, uh, it's taxpayer money that you're funding. Today, I don't think so. I may be wrong, but I don't think so that anybody will come and ask you, uh, tell me how much of this is translated to commercial business at the end of maybe, not now, maybe in five years. Uh, all of well, let's look at the Clean Space Initiative. Yeah. Let's talk about the Clean the Space Debris Initiative that ESA, ESA launched with uh, the, the company that's based out of Switzerland. It's a prime example of that. And I think it, it's important to, to, to feed that, that one, one of the things that, government is trying to do, or at least in my head, the government is trying to do, is trying to be a lot more hands-off. And do you think that they're going to be hands-off for, you know, in the near future for, for, and give the reins to, to, to folks like yourself from a marketplace standpoint, be like, Hey, you know, you have all, all of this map. Why don't you take this over? Why don't you become the middle ground? Mm, the thing is, it's, uh, it's going to be a cultural change that is going to take a long time. Nothing can happen overnight, for sure, because the set of incentives that are already in place for people to act on are already, you know, it takes a massive cultural change in all of this, right? Because uh, I think it's a slow process. It's going to take at least, you know, like 10 years or more, uh, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, that's because people need to realize uh, and the push and pull will come from you know, other places where they see other companies succeeding and governments will realize that, uh, you know, maybe in different markets, uh, the spending that the government is doing uh, becomes lower and lower and the commercial segment is taking up. Uh, uh, and then, you know, there's more and more uh, commercial activity that's happening. And then at the end, governments realize that there is a difference between how much uh, taxpayers are funding something and how much the government is earning at the end as tax revenues. Because at the end of the day, every government wants 
no matter what field of technology it is funding tax revenues that's the incentive for any government out there and of course in space you know there may be sovereignty and you know uh, access to technology and all of these things that also come into place which are very important for most governments but once commercial activity kicks off and one region of the world and one uh, set of suppliers or, or actors are able to show that commercial markets have taken over certain supply chains um, and certain parts of the industry and they're able to file you know taxes uh, by generating revenue and servicing customers in that segment obviously you know governments in a reasonable uh, country anywhere will be asking the same question as to why we're not able to do that and that's i think is the path towards uh, the systematic approach to looking at how can we uh, mature some segments because at the end of the day you know we have massive amount of different segments where the level of commercialization in each one of them is very different right so nobody believes that uh, space agencies need to build uh, satellite uh, dth television satellites anymore that was a problem that solved like 50 years ago maybe right and it's like foolish to ask a space agency to say go build these uh, you know dth satellites but there are you know uh, space agencies building it at the moment like you know in india we still build dth satellites at the space agency we've not seen uh, suppliers take that over and you know that's a massive opportunity there itself and today you know you're seeing all of this leo broadband and you know that's another supply chain you've seen like commercial earth observation coming up and so on right so and then you know you have all the other things like you said about space debris or space situational awareness or many many other market segments that are in different levels of commercial maturity at the end um so so it yeah i mean it may not be that everybody is going to be uh creating all of these revenues at the same time and it may take one ecosystem or one part of the segment to be more mature at one point of time and some may take more time at the end but then that's how the industry works in any case typically we've seen that um you know margins are improved in 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 variety of manner marketplaces they become vertically integrated and some go the horizontal route what is what is your strategy at satsurge yeah again um, it's an interesting question and we ourselves uh, have been thinking about this for a long long time as to how do we actually make this bigger and better in a way that it works for everyone and you know there's a lot of things that we can take different directions in right of course you know today we can increase our subscription with the uh, with the members that we have and we can keep doing that as long as we reach that uh you know limit of 100000 suppliers that we imagine of and uh, we keep, can keep doing it but then it's also interesting that we want to build out other tools that are interesting so today for example uh the technology that we built is uh, underlying principles of them come to this field of model based systems engineering which uh, you know my colleague karthik is very uh, you know adept to so for example we're also uh, looking at how can we actually uh, almost build out this kind of city for space kind of a model where if a certain engineer says i want to know what is the power on a battery by airbus uh, at this point of time there's no way that the engineer can know this without googling for that information or getting it by email downloading the data sheet opening it up figuring it out for it, for it themselves right so so today the way we have built the uh, the marketplace um you know we can kind of do that we can tell somebody you know query that exact specification 
and tell somebody you know uh, that this is the value for this right so a lot of the standardi- standardization of uh, how data is represented uh, in technical information and you know how that can be pulled up uh, and so on so and we also have uh, an api uh, the sat search api and that's being used by different tools in the industry today and our biggest integrator today is nasa so we have integrated ourselves into this uh, small satellite virtual institutes uh, you know search engine that they have built and so today you know anybody using that database to search for components or suppliers uh, they can find it through our api and we've had you know few integrations with valley space and uh, and so on so this that integration of uh, our library and creating the gold standard for products uh, in electronic uh databases right and so if an engineer for example who's designing a satellite wants a cad model to be integrated into their you know ketia model today the process is they have to go find it download it and then put it in their database so we can already use the satsearch database to integrate that into ketia and the engineer doesn't need to go anywhere they can just query our database and then drag and drop into their design environment right so that means that you already have so do you have a product graph uh, which one can approach yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, so yeah. Uh, okay. we we can already serve cad models we can serve uh, a lot of the information that engineers would need in the different life cycle of uh, projects or different simulation tools different project tools mission design tools and so on so you know we are uh, integrating them uh, in many of the industry tools and we see ourselves as more of uh, of an ecosystem creator for these for this data because at the end of the day you know that is also a value that we are creating both on the buyer side and the supplier side because buyers don't need to download the data or you know manually enter any of this data anymore they can simply query that through our engine and at the same time the footprint for the suppliers for their products and services becomes much much bigger with our api and so they are not just living on our site they are living through our site everywhere on all the tools that we are actually uh, building out and and so yeah so that is one part of it and we're also exploring some interesting uh, you know ideas around uh, dynamic demand in the industry so uh, everybody knows that uh, consulting firms uh, know a certain level of information about the market you know they know for example how many satellites are being built or uh, you know what is the projection like for satellites or so on but nobody in the world knows at the micro or the granular level that we can say what is the demand for a certain component or a certain technology or a certain type of uh, uh, service because we are the only one in the world who has any kind of demand data today right so now the question is like we don't want to obviously compromise buyer information that this buyer is looking for this or we don't want to also compromise supplier information saying this supplier is doing better than the other supplier because we lose lose trust on both the sides if we do that right so but then the interesting question there is what can we actually productize from all of that dy- dynamic demand data that we have today that allows value creation in the industry without compromising buyers or suppliers at the same time fair what have you found yeah i mean this is something that is ongoing at this point of time and we do know that there are use cases so for example you know uh if they can say for example the market is moving in this direction so for example if we can say um uh, bc you know uh 
X number of missions or X number of demand cases where somebody is looking to procure uh, integrated ADCS systems versus, uh, you know, X number of buyers are looking to pr uh, pr procure individual ADCS components and are willing to integrate all of them together, right? So that in itself is a signal to the market about what is the maturity like of the industry because we've, we've not re really revealed any data of the buyers. We've also not revealed any data on the suppliers, but we are really telling the industry, this is the direction that we see industry is moving in that analysis. That's interesting. Okay, so the, the move has been established, but no next steps are, well, the next steps are sort of continuous in this case, I guess. Okay, you know, so so here's a question. I mean, where from where you're standing right now, having a, a look at the market as a, as a, as a data sort of centric, perspective, how do you make your business defensible in terms of gaining competitive advantage? You know, is there anything that makes defensibility a unique challenge for you guys, or it's a non-issue for space-focused marketplaces? Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, that's a question that we also ponder upon quite a lot as such, because uh, we know the journey that we have gone through as well. And we know that um, we could have gone wrong in thousands of places in this journey. And anybody who uh, wants to build what we are building, obviously, you know, uh, a company like Amazon, if, we see, if it sees enough value in the kind of stuff that we are doing, maybe can obliterate us in like a week uh, with all their, uh, you know, uh, power in terms of uh, mon monetary power and the, the capabilities that they have as such. But then it's also about uh, trust in both buyers and suppliers that gives us defensibility uh, at the same time. Because, uh, you know, like uh, the there's a cultural change in suppliers as well in terms of uh, how they look at all of this, the adoption. And it's extremely difficult for um, any new operator to come in and say, uh, you know, you don't need to spend like search uh, money on such search anymore. You need to spend us uh, spend it on us. And for us to lose that customer, that's the one layer of defensibility, right? Because we already deliver enough uh, value to our existing customers uh, that gives us a level of defensibility. And the case for us losing that business becomes once we see somebody who, you know, is able to deliver more value than we do, uh, and and so on. So that that is one level of it, right? Uh, but it's also about the buyer side, you know, the trust that we have with buyers is also kind of critical. But at the end of the day, you know, any nascent or uh, marketplace or any uh, any marketplace for that matter at any given point of time, it only, I think, comes down to, to this in, in a B2B kind of a segment. It's purely about like trust on the buyer side and on the supplier side. And I guess, you know, uh, if the market is big enough, there may be even like two or three or four or five different marketplaces for all of this, right? Competing against us. It could be that there's uh, that there's enough uh, meat on the bone kind of uh, for four or five or other marketplaces to exist alongside us. And, and I think it's also a bad sign if we don't have competition because it may be that uh, we are doing something very stupid that we're doing, um, that there's no competition at all. Uh, at the same time, so that may also be a wrong sign that uh, we're building out something tremendously stupid that we don't have any competition at all. So I think, uh, yeah, comp competition is encouraging because it means that people are thinking in that direction. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we are a strong believer in relationships. Uh, as long as, you know, there may be like automation in transactions, you know, people may file requests and people may like, you know, use our platform and its features and so on. But at the end of the day, everything boils down to human relationships, no matter what technology platform it is. And for us, you know, we believe in like investing our resources uh, in in those human relationships with our suppliers and buyers at the same time. And for us, you know, this is our core principle of account management because for us, you know, we go as long as it takes uh, with any of our customers to make sure that they are happy as such. And in fact, you know, the only kind of churn that we've had is churn where suppliers uh, who are, uh, you know, who don't have product market fit. So we've had no churn among customers who have had to come into our platform and said, we don't like the value that we've got so far. Fair. That makes sense. After five years of founding SatSearch, what are the biggest takeaways and and most striking learnings that you've you've had from starting a marketplace in the space sector? I would say, you know, the uh, it's like any other phase of the, any other company, right? Because we, uh, the biggest thing that we've learned is actually learning from other industries uh, as to what we can bring from, you know, B2B marketplaces in, uh, in the aerospace industry or the automotive industry or, you know, the electronics industry. I strongly believe that uh, almost any, Apart from the technology itself that we in the space industry are building, most other technology-driven industries are like at least two decades ahead of us in the space industry. And unfortunately, like most of us in the sales, uh, in the space industry are in our own bubble of people, of, uh, you know, people who are constrained to this space and satellite and and all of this launch industry who don't uh, talk enough to people outside of our industries to learn from them as to what are the mistakes that they've done or how they've solved a particular problem or it may not be related to technology it may purely be related to like how they've approached that problem uh, in case you know it fits in our case that's the inspiration that we've got so you know one of our um, uh, advisors and investors uh, angels that we have in our company uh, has built a marketplace for uh, uh, electronics components, and uh, you know the, they've they built up built it up ground up, and they sold the company. And you know we're very lucky to have uh, uh, him as uh, one of our backers in that sense. And and then you know saying for us, you know, it's more than just that relationship that brings to the table. It's it, of having to go through that life cycle of building a B two B marketplace. Uh, in a different industry and having to go through the entire life cycle of building everything up and seeing everything through and then eventually exiting out of it. And so every time we face a problem uh, in the marketplace and the mechanics of it, and if there's any kind of transaction problems, we don't look at anything in the space industry at all. We just go to other industries, look at, okay, there was this problem in that industry. How did these guys solve this and is there a model that we can we can kind of bring into the in our industry and apply it in certain ways right so yeah so that's uh, uh, that's been like the core 
of learnings for us and uh, and then you know there are of course something unique to us uh, in our space industry uh, in terms of how we can control for behavior because behavioral changes are cultural and it takes quite a long time to change so we would love to see every supplier you know broadcast their prices their uh, you know cad models or any other information that they want openly so that it's fully transparent for people uh, looking at all of this but again you know it's a very cultural change and people are afraid that uh, or, or that competitors will take that information and do uh, and use it against them and so on but you know that's also something that we uh, advocate for where we're trying to not just be like you know vendors or partners or so on but we really want to be like consultants to any you know, any and every of these suppliers that we work with in moving forward the industry towards this uh, you know globalization and openness of uh, of data and you know the supply chains right so and and that is we're already seeing that because some of these suppliers have already opened up that information that we work with but then i think for us the more we do it the more uh, the industry benefits overall so that's you know been our kind of uh, i mean there are always these small everyday problems uh, that we see all the time but i think overall i i do want to say that uh, we can take a lot of inspiration from other sectors just want to clarify something do you guys have external capital sources uh we have uh, friends uh we have the fff friends family and fools friends family and <laughs> <laughs> uh with us uh who who are very good friends of us uh essentially and it happened to i mean it's just uh, that a couple of them are uh, friends who are also uh, happen to be ceos of companies uh, who built marketplaces uh, in other sectors and successfully exited out of them um and have enough cash to say uh, i don't mind losing this money on such search so <laughs> <laughs> you got to got to love those people looking into that <laughs> now one of the things here is that you personally have been have been working a lot with the indian space community so so tell us a little bit about your role and what are what are some of the upcoming goals of the indian space program from isro I know they're focusing a little bit on human space flight. Priorities are changing from moon to, you know, lower earth orbit again. So what what are what are we looking at here? That's yeah, India is one of the exciting geographies as I said because uh, of the large amount of problems and the large geography and the amount of people that we have, right? So it's one of the most untapped markets when it comes to these kinds of applications. And I think, you know, there are two communities in India today that are existing. One is the legacy space uh, sector which is you know the government driving everything through the space agency and its network of suppliers who are supplying to the space program very much like europe or nasa or whatever uh, and so on but then there's also this exciting new space segment where people are uh, trying to build their own satellites and trying to craft their own solutions and are able to do it right so we have about 50 startups that have come up in the last 7 8 years who are doing very interesting things across different parts of the value chain and there's a lot of problems that have been systematically you know up and coming have been solved over the last few years when i started my first company in india in 2012 we didn't even have like a proper angel who was even willing to consider investing a dollar in like the space industry right so that's one of the major things that have been solved today because we've had like 
so many technology millionaires and billionaires that have come up in India in the last 10 years that people are excited about technology and investing in technology and there's tons of VC funds today in India, tons of angel investors who have come from the technology background and have sold their companies in other areas of technology and are funding them. So in the last two or three years, the capital availability for a lot of these companies to start, uh, you know, has become quite low. There's tons of capital if they have good ideas today. Uh, the thing that is still not changed is the regulatory environment. Uh, we still don't have you know, proper rules and guidelines that allow uh, companies to do like upstream activity. For example, if you want to launch rockets or you want to build satellites or so on, the uh, the full regulatory environment as to what happens when it comes to licensing spectrum for you to operate your spacecraft or, you know, selling spacecraft to other countries or, uh, you know, uh, launching uh, your own rockets out of Indian soil. Those are things that are very uncertain still. I mean, there's some progress because we have a draft space uh, bill and, you know, they've created a sort of a regulator recently uh, to, to solve these problems. It's, uh, it's an ongoing problem. Uh, but I still think it's still early days and we'll have to see how this transpires and I'm hoping that some of these companies will succeed. But what is interesting for me is that once one of these companies in India solves for India, they get a massive scale to operate in because the problems may be very similar in Southeast Asia and in Africa. So, And the price points that they are able to solve may also be transferable to other Southeast Asian and African markets. So it gives them the scale to operate at uh, at a level uh, that it may not give European or American companies to do it. Um, but it that's the, uh, you know, at least the thesis that I have internally for myself as such. And so that's something that I'm really excited about. We've already seen a few co companies like, you know, Numerate or Satchor or others who are operating in, you know, countries like Philippines or Sri Lanka or or Africa or so on. Uh, we've already seen that evidence with some of these companies. It's just a matter of time that we also see it uh, not just in downstream, but also in the upstream of the industry where if there's a couple of operators today who are building these launch vehicles who are successful, uh, they may offer it at price points that are extremely reasonable against the international market. And as they develop reliability, they may be good. Um, so it's a it's an up and coming ecosystem, but unfortunately, due to the size and the scale of the country, India is like a um, elephant that takes a little bit of a time to move directions. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so it, uh, that you can't compare with to smaller you know countries that are of the size of the rabbits and they can move very far, fast, uh, so on. Fast yeah. and quick yeah. pace. So it makes sense. It makes sense, though. I mean, with the, with the amount of population and the amount of issues that come with it. So I really want to appreciate because uh, what you have done here, because I think it's phenomenal that you're including and sort of thinking about the Indian space community in the same perspective because of your, your time there. So understanding the limitations of trade secrets, what do you think uh, you know that no one else understands? What's your deep inside your unfair advantage of information? It's a very hard question to say. I would say then, you know, it's a question of um, uh, relationships, I would say. Uh, uh, for me, are really, at least my kind of trade secrets at the end. Because at the end of the day, um, I think um, one of the things that we are seeing in any part of the world, you know, be it my work in India or here in Europe or with SatSearch or whatever it is, uh, to have cultural change happen, 
you need to have people who trust in your ideas and that comes out of you know building relationships that are not short term uh, are not based on you know profit that is just for the moment or that sale or so on but are really in terms of uh, empowering every person that we meet to be a part of the change for like the better in future right so be it a policy maker in india or a bureaucrat or you know uh, any startup uh, investor or you know any of these suppliers that we work in in our company for example at the end of the day i think um, at any given point of time i'm only thinking about uh, what can we do to build uh, strong relationships that uh, that allow people to like reflect on ideas that you can also uh, work with them on and then empower them to also look at uh, your perspective and if it is reasonable enough for them to then say i acknowledge this and i i want to be able to move in that direction as well right so i think um, uh, this is what we see in india as well because at the end of the day you know um, i'm one of the only like let's say open critics of many things in india because unlike you know many parts of the world we in india are are really not built out of criticizing or work openly right so i've written like 75 papers over 75 papers i've recorded over 50 podcast episodes and in criticizing the system and 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 so on so in that case we're not really coming from a culture that criticizes openly right so but then you know with all of that work uh, having done all of that work i used to either get people telling me okay you know you're just criticizing for the sake of criticizing but i also had a number of people who came to me saying that you're speaking the truth and it is allowing to reflect uh, on what we can do to change the status quo or so on so and i want to be able to work with that kind of people right who say um, i acknowledge what you are saying and i want to work with you to make sure that uh, we want to build the future that is better than what we are, have today right so and that's where i think um, you know i want to invest in any kind of uh, personal getting to know people to what they are and then uh, looking at uh, what can we do together is something that i always look at uh, with anybody kind of i meet so here's the last question for you and i wrap it up with all of our guests uh, with that question why space and why space now I think uh, we are uh, uh, one of the most uh, underutilized uh, tools by mankind um and at the end of the day if you see the transformation that the aviation world underwent after the world war 2 where you know people who were flying planes to just bomb each other started to fly you know between those countries and created airports and created the, all this of the employment and created the whole industry of people moving between places you can see the transformation uh, of people right uh, in that industry and and many people may not know for example that the early pioneers of rocketry for example in modern rockets believed that rockets the application for of rockets for was for mail like they were looking at post and looking at how can we take you know uh, post from new york and send it to california through a um, through a rocket because it's going to save us a lot of time while you know taking the road takes a lot of time in the us between new york and california so 
you know that was the history of uh, very early stage uh, you know model rockets in the 1920s and 1910s and you know many people may not uh, even know that history as of today as we stand that people would have thought that the first applications for rockets that people thought was post or you know uh, or what the people called as rocket mail for example right and and today we still stand in that uh, precipice where we're still very underutilized uh, by the society and only now i think as we link applications in in agriculture in energy and, and any other sector and we're becoming the backbone of any other technology infrastructure and problems in the society will we realize that we are solving a lot of the problems so if spacex is going to be able to take people from uh, you know us to to australia in like 90 minutes instead of like 36 hours i'm happy you know if they are able to prove that price point and are able to like you know take the all of, i mean that's real productivity right for people to get there and safely and and at a, at a price point that they can afford and everything else and so i think we still remain uh, an undiscovered tool in the in the quiver of you know humanity's uh, you know uh, arrows that humanities can uh, can shoot and so hopefully our generation is the one that uh, realizes the potential and then hopefully you know then we'll have a, a community that is as big as the aviation industry or uh, as big as uh, you know the automotive industry or whatever it is that has established over the last hundred years uh, that uh, is you know that kicks off from our generation. Well, uh, Narian, it's been a fantastic conversation, very insightful. I think uh, the viewers and the listeners are going to have a fantastic time listening. You know, not only that you've given us insights into the backgrounds on Sat Search, but there are some some key nooks there that that I don't think I myself or the producers here knew either. So, so that's uh, so. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time and. Uh, Glad to have you with us, and we'd love to have you back again in the future uh, for other for other purposes. Again, you know, thank you very much for uh, having me uh, as a guest, and uh, you know, giving me the opportunity to share some of my uh, insights. I mean, people can always reach out to me at narayan@satsearch.com if they have uh, anything that they want to discuss, or they also want to uh, debate on some of my uh, views that I said as well. So, thank you again for the opportunity. Paul, thanks for joining us for another episode of Space Forward. Stay tuned for more deep dives, explorations, and journeys we have in store for you. Follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Hear you next time. Send us your comments and questions. We will feature them in one of our next episodes.